Well, our song after the hearing of God's word will be hymn 70, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. I encourage you to have your Bibles open once again to that passage that we just read from earlier from Luke chapter 21, especially uh, verses 20 to 36. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're looking now at the final step of Christ's exaltation. There are many steps of Christ's humiliation and many steps of his exaltation. With these several steps and stages, we see how he was humbled and glorified. As a child, as an infant, he was placed in a manger. Later, he stood before Pontius Pilate. Later, he hung upon a Roman cross. Then his body lay in a tomb. And now in exaltation, he is seated at God's right hand. His work on earth is accomplished as the word sitting naturally means that he's in a place of authority. All authority has been given to him. And what a picture that presents in our minds of his complete power. And there will be that day, as Philippians 2 says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord. And we also confess that one day Jesus will rise from his place at God's right hand and he will come to judge the living and the dead. As the angel said to the disciples, this same Jesus who you saw going into heaven will return in the same way on the clouds. When will that take place? Well, no one knows the day nor the hour, except the Father in heaven. But as Jesus says here in this passage, which we've read from the gospel according to Luke, we must be ready and prepared for his coming. So consider the final step of Christ's exaltation. We'll look at this with three points. First of all, the fall of Jerusalem. Secondly, the sun is coming. And then thirdly, the end is near. So first of all, we look at the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus was making a prediction about the future. And there are a few things in the text that help us to understand the meaning of this prophecy. One is the prediction that he makes concerning the fall of Jerusalem, spoken of in verse 20. But already he, he speaks of it in the earlier verse, in verse 6, where people are asking him, when is this going to happen? When is, when is this uh, temple going to be destroyed? And he basically says there, as for, the, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, all of this sounds rather ominous, rather gloomy. And if it sounds rather gloomy to us, just imagine how it sounded to the Jews at this time. They had a hard time believing this. But this prophecy shouldn't have sounded so strange, especially when you compare Scripture with Scripture. What would take place would be just like what happened in the past. Jesus actually uses a word in verse 20. It's the word desolation. 
which is a word that we find in Daniel chapter 8. His listeners would immediately remember the days around 167 BC when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes entered into the temple and desecrated it by sacrificing a pig on the altar. This was a tragic time etched into the memory of of Jewish history. Jesus is speaking about a day when armies would do the same thing by coming against them. These things did indeed happen. Some 40 years after he spoke these words, this prophecy came to pass. We read about Titus, the Roman emperor, the son of the Roman emperor who would march on Jerusalem. He would surround the city. Titus would besiege it. Some were captured. Others were put to death. If you know of any of the different Jewish historians of that time, we read of Josephus as well as Tacitus. Josephus, the Jewish historian, states that so many people were put to death that as many as one million Jews were killed and many others taken captive. Tacitus, a little less uh, numbers, but very similar. Either way, the losses and destruction were devastating. No wonder Jesus said this would be a terrible day for pregnant women and nursing mothers. What exactly did this terrible calamity, why exactly actually did this terrible calamity enter Jewish history, let alone human history? Why was it sacked? Why was Jerusalem sacked? Well, Jesus says in verse 22 why it is. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Verse 23 also says this at the end, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Vengeance is the unique prerogative of the Almighty. Wrath is his holy hatred for sin. So the fall of Jerusalem is really an act of God's justice. And this is not just predicted in the Gospels. We find this already rooted in Old Testament. Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 28 states this very clearly. It says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments, all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtake you. And... They will come upon your city. Now, what had Jerusalem done to deserve this? Well, they had put their own Christ to death. They had rejected the prophets. And it wasn't like as if there was no opportunity for them to turn from that and and repent and put their faith in, in the Lord. You might think it seems harsh, but it is a reminder to us of what we all in our natures deserve. When C.H. Spurgeon preached on this text, he said that the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple serve as a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be, as the unrolling of the curtain on the great drama of the world's doom. And how true that is. 
like the diamond on a ring, the jewel of this entire world, Jerusalem, had to go through this. And if that's the case for Jerusalem, that also is foreshadowing of what is to take place at the very end of time. The only safety is in the grace of God. God is always merciful, beloved congregation. We're never without his help. And a good example of this is found right within the text. Verse 21 says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are, who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Jesus said this so that his own people would know what to do at this time. He wanted to protect his own disciples. Normally in those days, if you wanted to flee some kind of calamity, what you did is you entered into the city where there, was, where there were walls to protect you. But Jesus is saying, don't go in there. Run to the hills. And this warning actually saved the early church. We know this from history. Three years before Titus sacked Jerusalem, another Roman general marched against the city, Cestius Gallus. And when that happened... Christians knew what was going to take place, and most of them fled. And that's certainly God's grace at work. God always gives a way of escape for his people whenever judgment comes. What did boys and girls tell, what did God tell Noah to build? He told him to build an ark, remember? God told Lot to flee Sodom and Gomorrah. And later on, Jeremiah would be spared when the Babylonians came to destroy Babylon in 586. God is a God who always delivers. His deliverance isn't merely by boats or by fleeing a city or by fleeing to the refuge of the church. No, deliverance ultimately comes to the one who puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That holds true for every believer. And the dangers of life, whether great or small, our lives are hid in him. When Christians face persecution, God is their refuge. When their faith is weak, he will be their strength. When they're troubled, he promises them peace. When they're tempted, he promises a way of escape. When they're uncertain about the future, he will lead them. And when they're repentant and sorrowful for sin, he promises full deliverance. But there is one exception. There was one godly man who trusted in all of God's promises but still suffered the full weight of God's wrath. And one night he prayed, Lord, if it is possible, may this cup pass me. But the Lord himself didn't avoid the cross. He gave himself for us. As the word of God says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Well, that brings us to what we see here secondly within this passage. And what the Lord speaks of here is that he himself, as the Son of Man, is coming. Well, it's true that Jesus is predicting what would happen shortly afterwards. There is more that he's speaking about. He's lifting his gaze from the immediate uh, prediction about Jerusalem to the end of the world. And we see that in verses 25 and following. And we know that he's talking about the end of the world because he says in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And before all that, he predicts all of these signs that will take place. How exactly are we to interpret these words? What are we to make of these signs, for example? Well, the language Jesus uses here is what we call apocalyptic. That is, it's the kind of language that prophets often used about the end of the world. The prophet Joel said, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. We find a a similar prophecy like that in Isaiah, where he said, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. So that helps us to understand what what Jesus is doing here. Like the prophets of old, who spoke about judgment in their own day, they also looked to the future. They saw a time of judgment with all kinds of disaster, the disaster that will come upon, upon those in those days. But that disaster is always set against the backdrop of the end of the age when God himself will come to judge thee, the world. Before Christ comes, whatever day that will be, there will be signs. And right now, we do not fully know what that will exactly entail or what it will look like. How will it be that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light? There will be so much commotion. It will be as if the stars of the heavens will fall down. And Luke also adds that there will be a dreadful commotion of the sea and the waves roaring. But more to the point is for us to understand that the Lord will be, will return visibly. It will be a great and dreadful day. Every eye will see his radiant lights and everyone will bow down before him. He will return majestically. He'll be wearing the royal crown of his eternal kingdom. He will come gloriously with the full radiance of his Father's glory. That's the final step of Christ's exaltation when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And there are basically two ways of responding to that. Two ways of responding to these signs of Jesus coming. And both, respond, both responses show us the kind of relationship that we have with him. One is to be afraid. That's the way most respond. You know, when there's a disaster, when the raging sea uh, wipes out an entire community, 
Many people faint with fear. As Jesus said, there will be an international turmoil, as he calls it, the distress of the nations. Even for people who don't believe in God, the signs of God's judgment will be so incredible. And you know how it is. Whenever something bad happens, people will say, oh no, it's the end of the world. But that's exactly what we're supposed to think. Every disaster is a warning of the final judgment. Every earthquake, every hurricane or tsunami, every tornado, every terrorist terrorist attack is a reminder that God is just. But there's grace. God withholds his wrath until the final day so that the world can look at all these signs and realize that the Son of Man is not here yet. There's still time. And so one reaction here is to be afraid. But how are we to react? What does Jesus say for us to do? Well, verse 28 lays it out quite clearly. It says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And that answer is reflected in Lord's Day 19. We can stand tall in our faith because we know that God is bringing about his redemption plan. All these signs with the growing unbelief and the darkness and the falling away into the world remind us that the end is near. The Son of Man is coming. Each hour is another hour closer to that time. Each day is another day that's closer to that day. Every week, every Sunday, every sermon that gets preached brings us ever near. And soon, beloved congregation, the ravages of sin will be over. Soon we'll receive new bodies. Soon we'll be reunited with saints. And a redemption will come. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. That's our everlasting hope. That's why Jesus ends this prophecy with some words of exhortation, which brings us to our last point, that the the end is near. In verses 29 and following, Jesus first gives a little parable about the fig tree. And the analogy is pretty simple and straightforward. One of the first indications that summer is around the corner is when you see a fig tree budding. And so according to Jesus, whenever you see the signs of his coming, you can know for certain that the end is near. And he goes on to say in verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will, buy, will, not, will not pass away until all this has taken place. Which means before a single generation shall have been completed, they will learn by experience the truth of what is said here. The people of Jerusalem would see this with the coming destruction on them. And even more than this, every generation, every single generation, 
before the close of a single generation, believers will feel in reality and by undoubted experience the truth of Christ's prediction. In other words, the, the emphasis here is, is it's on the certainty of this. The end is coming. And to confirm this, Jesus says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Kind of reminds us of Isaiah 40, which says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The question is, how are we to react to this? And the answer is, by getting ready. We cannot drift through life without thinking seriously about the end of the world. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. So every time Jesus talks about the end of the world, he gives some advice, some practical advice about what to do. He says here to be prepared. Some people are not going to be ready. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, but watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Here we need some self-examination. It's true that some people turn to the bottle to help them get by in life. They deal with their fears about the future or the troubles of daily life by getting intoxicated. Rather than putting their trust in the Lord, they try to make themselves feel better. Now, the Bible doesn't forbid the moderate use of alcohol. Let's be very clear about that. We're to enjoy God's creation. But it's also very clear that it warns us, even condemns, the heavy consumption of alcohol. So Jesus is pretty clear here. If you have been getting drunk or if people you love are concerned about how much you're drinking, basically what he's saying is stop. And if you find that you can't stop, that proves that there's a problem. You need medical attention. And even more than this, the abuse of alcohol is not just a medical problem. It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual issue that requires repentance, which comes by the use of the Spirit, namely the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, according to Christ, one thing that prevents us from getting ready for the end of the world, even the end of earthly life, whichever comes first, is a lifestyle of carousing in drunkenness. Someone who drowns their sorrows with too much alcohol or drugs is not ready for the second coming of the Son of Man. And you know, that's not just for uh, overconsumption of drugs and alcohol. We can all have a tendency to fill our lives with too many distractions, too many cares of this life, too much entertainment, too much computer games, romance novels, the diversions of too much sports, the list is endless. If you're using these things to drown out life and death issues, and if it's making you forget your spiritual priorities, 
then you're not ready for the second coming. According to Jesus, the, the cares of this life can hinder our spiritual preparation just as much as getting drunk. Instead, the instruction that Jesus gives in verse 36 must be taken to heart. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So we must pray. We must make worship a priority. We must be in God's word daily. And so how about you? What are the temptations that you're facing? Are things in your life right now that perhaps are hurting you and putting you to sleep with regard to your spiritual calling? May we not, let, may, may, may we not be those who drive themselves to distraction with things that may hinder us from that great day of the Lord. For that day is coming. But instead of being like the world, may our faith in Christ cause us to cling to him so that, as Lord's Day 19 says, in all distress and persecutions, with uplifted head, I confidently wait for the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the curse from me and will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Amen.